Today I talk about surgery with Dr. Matt Retzloff from the Fertility Center of San Antonio and what can business leaders dictate to clinicians and why. Before I get into my conversation with Dr. Retzloff, today's shout out goes to Dr. Mike DiMatina from Dominion Fertility in suburban DC. I know that Mike listens because I often get a text from him or an email when there's a topic that he really likes. So shout out to Dr. Mike DiMatina today. For the conversation with Dr. Retzloff, we talk about surgery, what surgery still belongs in the purview of the REI, which is probably better off left to other subspecialties, and what business leaders can say about what REIs should be doing based on the overlap that comes from business operations and clinic operations. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Matthew Retzloff from the independently owned Fertility Center of San Antonio. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Retzloff, Matt, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. Great to be here. We're going to talk about surgery today, which is a topic that is really important to you. I have a pious hope that we're also going to talk about what it means to have REI productivity and, and that that ties into that. But why is surgery an important topic that you want to bring to the forefront? Surgery in the realm of REI has always been a bit of a controversial area and in what some of the controversies sort of revolve around are whether or not it is actually beneficial for the practice to offer surgery, for example, time management issues, reimbursement issues, and how you tie that into the productivity of the, of the clinic. And there now has evolved an entire other specialty of minimally invasive surgery that where fellows who actually specialize just in surgery do many of the same surgeries that the were sort of always the purview of the reproductive endocrinologist. So, you know, there are many reproductive endocrinologists who are sort of um, moving more towards just being in-office IVF physicians and seeing themselves uh, merely as an IVF physician and um, others who really still maintain that surgical hole, that niche of surgery. And um, so I think that it remains very important to have that in your armamentarium within your practice. It doesn't have to be every one of the providers, but I do think there are advantages um, both to the patient and to the practice for an REI practice to continue to offer uh, surgical procedures. When did this start? Like how long has this been a phenomenon? Would you say yeah. escalated more in your career? How long has this yeah. been? It's a great question. I, I think that, you know, I trained from 2000 to 2003 in Boston at, at the Brigham Women's Hospital, and our fellowship was really quite diverse, both on the surgical side, as well as the IVF and the infertility side. And so I really got, ex I was exposed to a, a breadth of, of surgery, 
all the way up to and including laparoscopic tubal reversals, uh, myomectomies, uh, really just a high volume surgical practice. So really from a skill set wise, I felt like we really were sort of prepared to kind of do what I call the one-stop shopping for the patients, meaning they come to see you whether they had ever had any evaluation and you could sort of take them all the way through without having to refer them out. I think to answer your question, over the next five to 10 years, as really residents and fellows began to see sort of a decline in surgical volume. And I say a decline because there became many alternatives to surgery. And so as volume started to go down, training started to go down. And I think part of it was it became a little bit easier, quite honestly, and maybe even a little more comfortable to do really focus in on just IVF. Um, whether or not the provider felt they could stay sort of up to speed with a lower volume of a particular type of a surgery, or whether they just felt more comfortable increasing the IVF volume and having sort of a, a referral within the minimally invasive surgeons to sort of help them in that surgical volume. So really, I think over the last 10 years, I've seen it evolve more and more to where REI practices, in, many of them are doing less surgery and more just office-based uh, IVF. The adjacent subspecialty that you described for minimally invasive surgery, is this a sub-subspecialty? Are these REIs doing minimally invasive surgery only, or are minimally invasive surgeons doing surgeries across the board, REI uh, and OBGYN surgeries are just among them? So they are a ABOG recognized subspecialty now, just as RE is. So they are sort of on the same subspecialty level as MFM, GYN oncology, the urogynecologist, and now the minimally invasive surgeons. So they don't, they don't just serve uh, in the realm or the purview of the REI-related surgeries. They do other hysterectomies, other types of procedures that sort of more fall onto the purview of the general OBGYN as well. Just that Venn diagram sort of for them actually includes a lot of the surgeries for REI. Do you like it? Do you love it? Are you, are you totally so, against this? Uh, well, what, what's your opinion? You know, I think it's, I'm sort of biased, obviously, I'm biased towards doing my own surgery. But I, what I mean by that, though, is you do have to be somewhat selective. There are cases which begin to sort of take a toll on the practice. I'll call it a toll. And what I mean by a toll is that your uh, the time investment, um, whether it's the actual surgical case itself, which third party payers right now, the bigger cases just really you're not reimbursed for your time. If you were to do a comparison for if I spend my time in the clinic versus I spend my time in the operating room, reimbursement's going to be much better for your time, hourly time spent in the clinic. So there are some, and I would use a repeat myomectomy, uh, maybe an extensive uh, endometriosis case. You know, I, I'm talking that two to four hour case or sometimes even longer case where um, really those may fall under, and, and, I, and I still use honestly, I have got a, a GYN oncologist here locally who are minimally invasive trained as well. And so I use them, whether it's in an assistant role or even as a primary referral. If REI centers, if IVF centers have their own ambulatory surgery centers, do, do the economics incentives change much? I th if you were to go back 10 years, uh, that was a big question and honestly a big interest of mine is to you know, get certified as an ambulatory surgery center if you could get your clinic and then there are still some that do that and 
there were advantages which unfortunately now aren't playing out like they used to. Reimbursement used to be much better. Obviously, um, it, it came with its own set of overhead. You had to staff it independently. You had to get, keep all your certifications up. You had to meet all state requirements and guidelines. What has happened over the last few years, as, as that reimbursement has gone down, it's become less and less of a um, sort of a go-to mechanism to sort of make that surgery make sense financially. In general, it sounds like a pro-surgery, but with some limitations. Some cases, especially the ones that are more time-consuming, would be best left in the hands of referring surgeons. Which surgeries still belong within the purview of REI? Which ones are better to refer out? So I think there are very few hysteroscopies, I think, that really should be referred out. I think really now the debate on the hysteroscopies is what you feel comfortable with doing in your office, going into sort of operative hysteroscopy versus what you need to take over to the ambulatory surgery center. And I do think that to make it sort of a viable component of your practice, ideally you'll do as much as you can in your office. Uh, Third-party payers obviously appreciate that and reimburse you better because they're not paying the exorbitant fees to the ambulatory surgery center. And quite honestly, really removing that from the surgeon's fees to sort of offset their expenses. So hysteroscopy specifically, I think, really still remains in the purview of the REI. Laparoscopy, I still think that anything sort of ovarian related, whether it's a cystectomy, um, any sort of over, over ovarian reconstruction, tubal surgery, um, and even laparoscopic myomectomies or excessive procedures, which are um, ablative techniques for fibroids also still remain within the uh, REI's purview. So how does this, how does it help or hurt the practice model if we're going the ideal case and keeping those procedures that you feel do belong in the REI purview? How does that help or hurt a business model? Mechanisms, I think, which actually help the business model, number one, um, referral basis. So you're referring OBGYNs, you become known as the surgeon for X, Y, and Z procedures. Once your name gets tagged to those procedures, they know we have this particular procedure, they're coming to you. It begins just to sort of snowball right into the, well, the infertility patients, and really all your referrals begin to roll in. And, and I always actually, uh, for example, with myomectomies, with my referring physicians, I always offer them, I'd schedule it with them, even offer them the primary reimbursement if they want, and I'll kind of go through the case with them. From a referral perspective, I think it can really work in your favor. You've got to have a niche and you've got to be the best at what you do. I mean, you can't have three or four people. You want to become the best at it. And so obviously you've got to remain competent in that particular skill up to, up to speed. And in fact, be on the cutting edge of the technology as that uh, hysteroscopy, as an example, especially it changes and um, you've really got to be on top of that. Second off, the other area of benefit is from the patients. You know, I see patients that really they'll come in to see you for the office. You refer them out for a procedure. And if you don't track them any other way, you often lose those patients. They don't end up coming back to you um, because surgical referrals are different than a primary referral back to a general OBGYN where you can kind of maintain that back and forth. Um, when you get to the subspecialty levels, you refer them out for surgery, they may end up somewhere else and not end up coming back to you. I mean, patients like the fact that they're seeing one physician, they're also their surgeon, they're also their treating physician. You're making a business case for it. I can at least imagine a business case against you. 
How do you suppose private equity entering the field impacts this dynamic? Gosh, you know, I hadn't thought too much about the private equity uh, component, although that's a becoming, you know, a bigger factor, obviously, over the last couple of years. You know, if private equity, what I see, what oftentimes will happen is, for example, they'll get a group of general OBGYNs and a group of subspecialists, almost sort of recreating the multi-specialty practice, just maybe not like physically located in the same office, but they sort of recreate it in a region, let's say in South Central Texas or wherever you may happen to be. And that sort of a model may actually sort of have, okay, these are our surgeons, they do the surgery. These are IVF doctors, they do our IVF. And so then they can maybe more um, compartmentalize and if you're referring within the same sort of network per se, you don't really lose those patients. I'm, I guess, referring more to the traditional practice makeup where you have an independent practice who, when you refer out, that all goes out and you really don't see any sort of benefit or impact in a positive way to your practice versus I think those you know, private equity firms that do that will still sort of catch that um, profit. So the business case against, and I'm totally speculating. So if somebody's yeah. listening to this and they belong to a PE part, partly owned group, feel free to contact me while I've been on the show. You, I have no idea how little or much surgery uh, PE groups are, are doing, but I could see a business case against being, well, IVF's the bread and butter. We want to just, I want my physicians doing 400 retrievals a year, 500 retrievals a yeah. year. Everything else can be referred out. Is that is that the count? I mean, is that is that not yeah. that business case to me seems like the reason why this is on your radar in the first place? Right. I do think that could be a counter argument if you could develop a primed system with multifaceted, multi-specialty groups where, again, you compartmentalize and compartmentalize where your REs are primed on IVF and they come in and they do 12, 15 retrievals in a day and you can get the volume, a consistent volume and maintain that surgery within sort of that network. To me, that that is an alternative model that potentially could benefit surgeries being taken away from the RE and put into the, you know, some other specialty. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. Or Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just, just a uh, couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. 
Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You're an N of one here, but you've also probably spoken with your peers a lot, so you might have some, some idea. But often when I hear, when I see someone with a group that they've got five, seven docs, they're in a hot growing market, they've got, they've got 15% growth year over year. I, I know they're getting calls every week from PE firms, and I ask them why. Why not? If everybody else is taking the golden parachute, and there's still so many for for as, as amazed as we are of how many people have in the last five years, I'm still amazed by how many haven't. Yeah. And I ask people why not, and they sure, because I don't want someone else telling me how to practice, how to run my office, how to to practice clinically. Is this one of the concerns that they have? Is sur- I, I don't hear them talk about surgery specifically, but how, how, how much is this something that others want to hold on to? I think if you were to poll, and again, I'm just speculating here, REIs across the board, there it would be more of a minority of them that would sort of miss giving up some of those, that surgical component, and many would be perfectly happy just focusing in on IVF. And, and, and I don't think that's an unreasonable kind of aim or goal, um, goal for them. I don't think, though, that that's a big component when it comes to evaluating the private equity firm offers and sort of looks at the at the buyouts. I don't think surgery, at least in my experience, my end of one here, of course, and others may have other experiences that uh, really you get dictated on the surgical side of the house. Um, I haven't seen that become a big factor. I just don't buy the argument that economic interest can't dictate anything that a clinician does operationally. I've heard lots of people say that. I've heard other people say that that it's not the case. And I'm, this is not anti-PE. It's not pro-PE. I get accused of being, I get accused of being, I I, I think there are times where it could be good, but I just look at what we do. We're a sales and marketing firm. And so if you're looking at the Venn diagram of the three most of the three biggest functions of the business, sales and marketing, operations, finance, it is a Venn diagram. Those rings do overlap. And that's just sales and marketing. There are things in operations we can see. It's like, I, if I owned equity in, in some of our clients, I might be making suggestions that aren't suggestions. If right, absolutely. Um, and, and I think the, the common response sometimes is, uh, well, it's the office, it's the business, but even that Venn diagram overlaps with the uh, those rings sure. overlap as well. And just in, what we see oftentimes, we start working with a group and we can get them 
pretty busy pretty fast with new patients. And then often there's a bottleneck. And so at that point, it's like, do you want to make this up? Bottleneck, go more. Do you want, do you want to have more? Well, that touches operations. And, you know, it, it, there are some things where it's like, hey, you know, I know that you're not using a ultrasound tech. You might consider it so that you're popping in. I'm a consultant, so I don't know any equity. I just offer these as suggestions. But if I'm a Wall Street guy and I own 30% of this joint, or if I own a controlling stake in this joint, and it's my money that I've got to make back in five years, that might not be a suggestion. I, I don't know how you, how you see that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it can sometimes almost be confusing when someone would say, well, are you concerned that you will have your, the way you practice dictated to you? And I completely agree with you. There's no doubt that you look at a private equity firm, Wall Street, they're going to look at return on the money. And if they're going to look, break my time into chunks of an hour, and what do I get on the return of an hour? And if I can get twice my return by doing IVF and half the return by doing surgery or whatever else you may put in there, whatever variable, you're going to be doing the one that gets the, the biggest return. Now, that way you practice and I think some people I've heard when I have the discussion get confused is, well, they're going to tell you how to do IVF. No, and I think most of them will be right up front and say, we're not going to tell you how to do it, but they will tell you, you need to do it. I mean, it, you can talk whether it's volume, but really, truly, what is the return on your investment? And what is the return on your time when it comes to a physician? Because, hey, what are we providing? We're providing a service. That service may be a procedure, whether it's IVF or that procedure may be in the operating room. What's the return on that procedure? And, and I do think they would look at that. And, hey, at the bottom line, what's it going to be? It's not going to be me and you here on the screen. It's going to be a spreadsheet in front of you showing X, Y, and Z. And it's going to be a breakdown. And, and it can be... Um, um, pretty impactful. And and maybe it's more carrot than stick. Maybe it's, you know, here's the bonus, et cetera. Um, but I, I just don't see how uh, operations doesn't interface with, with sales, top line revenue, which also doesn't interface with the business operations and, and office operations do overlap with, with clinical. If so, if we've had, Absolutely. We've had people on the group that are, are very, adamant that or on the on the show very adamant you don't ask people to do it right anyone's welcome to come on and give their, their perspective sure. I'm, just, I'm just sharing my vantage point when we start to get past that bottleneck then we yeah. get to a lot more consulting um but it's really it's, it's sure. like you client want to do this and if they say yes we help them but if, if, it, if it were your money yeah it wouldn't be you know it's well, I mean, I mean, you bring up a great point. I think that in, in, there is no intent from either you or I to say there's some sort of adversarial when you look at the private equity firms and what they do. Because quite honestly, it does become about business operations. And, and those questions, those, you know, those assessments need to be done whether there's a private equity firm or not. I mean, that's part of running a practice is your business operations and what's the return on your money. How are you, No one stays in business. No one stays in practice losing money. I mean, that's just about, that's the bottom line. And so I think those decisions honestly are, have to be made. Yes, how do you structure that model? But in the end, ultimately that has to, as you said, that Venn diagram has to have, the, the business operations have to include clinical services provided and, and, and everything, no matter who's involved. 
I, I, I love capitalism. I love what markets do. I love what competition does. I'm just sharing my perspective. Anybody's welcome on to do that. You're seeing, though, that it would probably just be a minority of REIs that really want to hold on to some of that, that, that surgery. You talked about, you made the business case for it. You also talked about uh, the patient interest for it uh, being in the best interest of care. There's a third dynamic, isn't there? Because I might have been with you, and I want to say it was ASRM Baltimore 2015, and we're hearing people talk about surgery. I don't know if I was just if if I was with you at that time, or I was texting you because you and I had previously talked about it. But I remember one of uh, the REIs uh, stood up and said, "You know, I one of the things that I miss so badly is." doing surgery. I love doing surgery. And I tell residents as they're deciding which subspecialty to go into that if you love surgery, REI is no longer for you. And it was, so you've got the business, you've got the patient's interest, but there's also a, a, there's a particular passion that some physicians have for it, isn't there? Uh, There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think you have, you have those who enjoy surgery there are others that sort of do what they need to do because they have to. And I think that comes across, it, that applies to sort of any sort of component of medicine, the practice of medicine, but especially surgery. And those that do surgery are typically very passionate about it. They love it. They get excited by it. And each case for them is actually a bonus personally for them. Take kind of remove ourselves from the business model for just a moment. And REI kind of would offer that opportunity before. I mean, like I mentioned before that five or 10 years ago where it began to transition away from surgery and more towards office-based practice. But um, yeah, there's no doubt it's, uh, you know, there are those that remain passionate about it, whether they can continue to survive and do the surgery or not, um, honestly depends on your unique circumstances in the, in the business model and, and, and how well you are at reimbursement. I think you've, you've got to know as a physician, you've got to know your coding, you've got to help your billing people out. It doesn't matter what you did, it really matters how you communicate that to your billing people up front and how they communicate that to the third party insurance because uh, you can spend four or five hours on a case, but if you can't properly bill for that, you'll never, your ship, your ship will sink. We could spend four or five hours on that. <laughs> yeah. it really is like no the it's like the IRS. It is. It is. Uh, oh boy, the CPT codes. It's. Uh, I've. I've. I've actually my uh, CME. I've spent a couple years actually still trying to focus and learn it. And every. It is. It's like learning the IRS code. Every time I think I get it, it, it change. They change it up on me. So. It's uh, if I want to buy a gift for my one of my employees it's like that would you know there's a there's a small limit it's most of it isn't tax deductible or it's like we could use it at the next team retreat (laughs) all right right right. uh, you know i just sent a video to one of our our clients who who refers us and um i I had like a d-list celebrity send (laughs) thank you and I was like, well, if that's a gift, that's not tax deductible. But if it's marketing and advertising, which because it's referrals, it is, it's, it's the same thing. It's, right. it's, it, it falls within either realm, but the, the coding really matters. Um, and we talked about like the, the business side of this, but is this, 
is this a substrand of that where not just like the you know how lucrative or, or is in its surgery but is some of it the headache of of this billing or how much does that deter or, or not people i mean it's a, a part of it is the headache of the they're just directly related to the complexities of the billing, knowing how to describe what you did, knowing how to add supplemental codes or, or whatever that however they may apply. The other is just collections. And you know, that applies to really anything we do. It's sort of, I, I'll do that periodically. I'll go back six months and I'll send seven procedures and say, what did we get for these seven procedures? Because quite honestly, you just every day, you're just kind of doing procedures. You're you assume you're getting paid for what you're doing, but in reality, it's amazing to see, A, the variability that each insurance company may pay for a particular procedure, and B, how long those payments get delayed out. And so you almost have to have one person staying on top of the collections and then those that get, you know, declined if they needed a, you know, pre-authorization and all that. So it really requires a pretty savvy billing person to be able to sort of massage it through so that you're actually get paid for what you did. Got any slick tips for people? Any, <laughs> any cheat codes you remember off the top of your head? For what I mean, a 22 modifier, for example, if you're doing lysis of adhesions, and I will dictate extensive lysis of adhesions. I spent 30 minutes, 45 minutes um, lysing adhesions. So you need to, within your operative report, dictate the time you spent doing it. And I will dictate as a procedure, as a separate procedure, I'll list out extensive lysis of adhesions. That's one. You know, staging endometriosis, telling which ovary, if it's on both ovaries, sometimes you'll get paid for bilaterality. Other times they'll say, well, you did it for one side. If you did it on the other, it doesn't matter because they're all incorporated. You have to know and be as smart as your front office, unfortunately, at how to bill and how to describe what you did and translate that into a, a billable um, a return. Is that, is that true? I, I kind of want to. I want to hear more about that thought. The, the physician needs to be as smart as the billing office. Well, you know, unless you have. So, for example, in our, our front office, I'm always offering. Would they have? Uh, either through ACOG or ASRM um, at the annual meetings, they'll often have uh, courses. In fact, almost every meeting, they'll have a course on billing. And I will either attend or will sort of pay to have our front office attend. And, you know, I think sometimes for the front office, it's understanding, you know, it's as the clinician, the surgeon going in there, you can kind of understand you speak the language you take someone from the front office, an admin person, and if they don't have the experience or speak the language, for example, you know, salpingectomy, lysis of adhesions, um, sonechii, these are some of the words we will use to describe specific scar tissues, etc. If you don't know how to sort of um, understand the language, then you really don't know how to um, sort of translate that to a, actually a billable code. I've been reading The Great Game of Business recently by Jack Stack, for anyone that wants to look that up. I'll have Caitlin put it in the show notes, The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack, and uh, talking about how departments can learn what the others are doing to help each other to see the bigger picture. Shadowing is a big part of their strategy. Is, does that ever happen? Does the physician ever say, hey, like, Put on your scrub, I guess non-COVID times, but uh, put on your scrub, yeah. put on the mask, stand right there. I'm going to show you what's going on and 
what I'm doing with the, the billing team. Could that work? Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, in our office in particular, I offer that up to really anyone in the laboratory and even anyone in, I've offered it to my MAs. I can't say I've ever offered it to the upfront admin because I guess I think they're less in a clinical realm and I haven't even really thought about it. But I, I think that's actually a, a really good idea because I think it's amazing what you can learn by a visualizing that visual opportunity and b just the discussion that goes on in the operating room so that they can see when i dictate something when i explain something they know then what i'm talking about that's a great idea and honestly no i haven't done that but i think it's that's really a good idea i'm huge into the interdepartment shadowing and even you know i've got what 10 12 people on my team and we still do it uh because it's just useful we're, we're a remote company so it helps the because you can just say, okay, you guys are going to do this on Zoom together. But I will sometimes, you know, if I just want to learn a little bit more about AdWords, for example, or whatever new automation we're doing, I will go into the platform myself, and then I'll have Barrett, our senior digital strategist, tell me what to do. So I'm, oh, this is what you are doing. And I have them do the same with our director of client success, with our project manager, our creative director. They all did, I'm having them do that with each other. For, for this reason that we're talking about. And, and I do see that when, because uh, when I go to visit clients, I try to shadow every department I can for the yeah. day. And I'll be talking to someone and then I'll be talking to the next person and they don't know that the other person does X. <laughs> so especially if, if we want to hold on to surgery, it sounds like we really need to be smart about how we're coding that that, that is, if, if not everything, it's a big part. It, it could be the difference maker. Definitely. And, and, and so that could help. So what's the future for surgery in REI? I mean, I think the future, I still am, I guess, the eternal optimist in that regard. I'd like to think we're going to remain a big a big part of the minimally invasive uh, procedures, especially as, you know, the advent of, of less invasive techniques are available Unfortunately, some of those become more expensive as we know any other technology becomes more expensive. So that kind of brings us back again, full circle back to the billing and reimbursement. But, but I think we are in a position to really be the leaders in fertility related surgery. I mean, I think, you know, I, as, as we move forward from here, it really, I would emphasize the need to really stay on top of the new procedures, changes in procedures, um, whether, and, and I could give you several examples, whether it's hysteroscopically or laparoscopically, you know, things that we do differently. You can't do it the way you trained 10, 15, 20 years ago because you're, you're out of date and it's being done differently and probably done better somewhere else. So, you know, I think I try to, one of the, some of the things I try to do is I'm a senior mentor um, with several different devices. So I actually go out and teach those devices. And that helps me as both a teacher and a learner, quite honestly, to stay on top of A, not just what's happening in my own practice, but what's actually happening, get my finger on the pulse outside because it, that tunnel vision can really start to set in after a while. So I think those are some general terms of where I think the future of surgery, you're going to see, you know, more outpatient surgery, more move towards the office. So I think that's, that's basically, I think the future for us. Let's stay in that mentor seat for your concluding thoughts, because if there's 150 fellows, I bet you a third of them listen to this show at some point or another, and they, 
often email me for career advice or ask to be connected to some of the people who've been guests. What would you have them consider about surgery as the field progresses and they advance their careers? Well, I do think that if, uh, if you enjoy the, you have to enjoy both infertility, IVF, and surgery. There's still a role for surgery within REI. I suspect, again, in residency, you're going to get sort of some of the more slanted towards, well, then you probably need to go more towards a minimally invasive or maybe even a GYN oncology, uh, urogynecology subspecialty to kind of really focus on surgery. So I think as we move forward, for those that are in training, I really would encourage them to get as much experience as you can. And, and I mean across the board, whether you know it's hysteroscopy, operative hysteroscopy, not just diagnostic, but what are the different modalities? When a case gets canceled, take that uh, surgical set and break it down. You need to know the mechanics of the device better than the scrub tech who may be trying to put it together for you. Learn from those who are strong in surgery. You know, if you have minimally invasive surgeons or you have an REI who does a lot of laparoscopy, whether it's uh, robotic laparoscopy or more traditional laparoscopy, again, surgery is all about volume. Volume translates to confidence. Volume translates into better outcomes. Dr. Matt Retzloff, thanks so much for championing surgery, for, for your thoughts on this and coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin, for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.